So go ahead and turn now to the book of Hebrews. Uh, I want to begin, though, as you're turning there with a question, a question kind of uh, with a purpose, but also to, to satisfy my own curiosity. Has anyone ever here, ever in here ever gotten in their car with the intention of driving to a place, and you get in, you drive, you're not really thinking much about it, and you arrive at your destination, and when you get to that destination, you realize this is not the place I was supposed to drive to. Has anyone ever done that besides me? Oh, thank goodness. That has happened to me a lot. I don't know what that says about me being a distracted driver uh, or, or what, but it is especially true if you've ever moved. If you've moved houses within the same town, uh, uh, whenever I was um, 20 years old, uh, we moved from one place to another, and oh my goodness, it was at least once a week, I would at least get halfway home and realize I was heading to my old home, not to, uh, to my new home. And it still happens today. We, we get in our cars, uh, our brain somehow flicks onto autopilot, and we think, well, I've driven this way before to go to this place, and our brain uh, and our hands and our feet just take us to that place. And you realize, holy mackerel, I wasn't paying attention at all. I'm not even supposed to be here. I'm supposed to be somewhere else. That has happened to me on more occasions than I could count. And it, it I think, in part, uh, shows us a demonstration of kind of why it is that the text that we have before us uh, is important, what it is that the text before us is teaching against. Not, it, it is not that the text before us is teaching against driving to the wrong place, but the text before us today is, in, is encouraging us to pay attention to what we're doing, to pay attention specifically to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because much like we can drive to the wrong place if we're not paying attention to where we're supposed to be going, if we lose sight of the gospel, it can lead us into all sorts of trouble. And so our, our text today, the author of Hebrews, encourages us in that. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is where we will be today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by us, by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray. Lord, we ask today as we open up your word that you would guide us as we read, as we study, that you would guide me as I teach your word. Lord, that the study that I have put into this sermon would bear fruit today uh, here in this place and in the lives of the people here. Lord, I pray that uh, the glorious news of the gospel, uh, the greatest news that has ever been told, uh, would become all the more magnificent, all the more bright, all the more glorious today as we study uh, this letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today, as you can see, my title is, is very simple. It is a reflection of that first verse. In fact, it is a direct quote, uh, but from the King James Version of the text. If you have the King James in front of you, you can verify that. Uh, there are Every now and then, the King James Version will, will word something in a way that I think just really sounds cool. And it has a nice ring to it. And the, the King James Version of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, gives 
this plea. It says, give more earnest heed is the plea that we have before us, that we as believers are being called in our text here today to give a more earnest heed to what we have received. The passage that we have here in front of us today is, it is an aside of sorts. The writer here is taking a break from the discussion that he has been engaging in uh, as he has been, been laying out for us the supremacy of Christ. He's now taking a break from that to offer us uh, an exhortation, a warning, if you will. It is, uh, it's as though in the middle of, of his discussion on Christ and his greatness, that he is the one whom God has spoken to through the world, spoken to the world through, the, the writer stops and says, wait a minute, do you see how important this message is? Do not miss this message. Look at how important it is because look who it has come from. And that is the, the main idea of this text and the main idea for our sermon today. It is a call to pay closer attention to the gospel lest you drift away from it. This is a very simple warning, a very simple idea that we have presented for us, which is the main thrust of our text, and yet it is one that is profound, one with great importance to our lives as believers. To neglect the gospel is to neglect the only source of salvation and rescue from destruction. It is to let go and drift away from the sure and steady anchor upon which our hope is built. It is a it is asking for destruction. It is asking for doom to let go and to drift away from this gospel. This is the message that the writer of Hebrews is communicating to us today in this passage. And, and I think it's helpful for us to consider this message as we look at four aspects of the warning that the author is giving to us here. The four aspects of this warning that I'm going to have us look at today is, first of all, the messenger. Second, the message. The proof of this warning and the stakes of this warning. First of all, let's consider the messenger from whom we have received this warning. And it starts, we begin to get a feel for the importance of the messenger when we read the very first word of the very first line of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. This section starts with the word, therefore. This word is an indicator for us that the author is is rooting his argument, rooting his statements on the foundation of what has previously come, of what he has said before this. He is saying that what I have already said is the foundation for what I am saying now, that what I am about to say is true because of what I have already said. And while the whole previous chapter, I think, is, is leading us to this conclusion that he gives, to this warning that he gives, I think we could say all of this is the therefore that he's referring to, but I think it is largely summed up and, and uh, rooted primarily in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, where the author says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is what the therefore is pointing us to. He is saying, God spoke in prophets previously, but now he has spoken to us, how? By his son, through whom he created all things, the heir of all things. He has spoken to us through his son. 
Therefore, because he has spoken to us through his son, give heed to what I am saying. Give a more earnest heed. The purpose that the author has in writing this section is to encourage them. Encouraging them to take seriously the message that they have heard. Why? Because this message is from Christ. This is the primary reason why the author is encouraging them to take seriously this message because of who the message is delivered from. The one who is greater than angels, the one who is the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the very son of God, eternally existent and perfectly just. If you missed last week's sermon, that is basically last week's sermon, is all of that. That Christ is all of that and more, far greater than angels, far greater than the prophets, far greater than any being that has ever existed on the earth. Christ is greater. This is the entirety of his argument. It's summed up, it hinges upon this truth. The reason why the news that has been proclaimed to us matters and why it should be given a greater examination, closer attention, is because it is from Jesus Christ. That this is not just some message given by a renowned philosopher or by another prophet or even by angels, as great as angels are. That this is the message. The author wants us to see that it is important. The importance of this message depends upon the status of the one through whom the message comes. And he is the most supreme. Therefore, give attention to this message. Because of the messenger, the message has weight. Because of the messenger, this message has weight. As I considered what, what kind of example we could, we could come up with for this, I thought of uh, just not that long ago whenever uh, me and, uh, and Robert and some of the other men were going on a camping trip and uh, Latasha was so gracious enough to watch Elijah and Nathan for us while we went out of town and and she called us while we were on the way, and she said, hey, I was, I was going to put on a TV show, um, and I was going to put on this show, and I asked Elijah if he could watch it, if he was allowed to watch it, and he said yes, but I wasn't really sure, so I wanted to call you and ask you, is it okay if he, if he watches this show? And I don't remember what the show was, and, and, uh, and frankly, I, I trusted her judgment um, but the reason that she called, and maybe you guys have dealt with this, if you've ever watched kids, had them come over and spend the night with you and your kids, or if you maybe as a kid ever went to spend the night at someone's house and we're going to watch a movie and they asked the question, are you allowed to watch this? And maybe you've answered the question, yeah, 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 I'm allowed to watch it. I'm allowed to watch it. And then they say, yeah, I think I'll just call your parents and make sure. And you're in the back of your head going, oh, dang, I don't call. They're going to say, no, don't call mom and dad. That was always the case with me. Anytime I was at someone's house and they said, are you allowed to watch this? I was always like, man, please don't call mom because the answer will be no, but I'm going to tell you yes. <laughs> the reason to call the parents, right, is because there's more authority, there's more weight in the answer in the message that you receive from the parent. They have the actual authority to give the message. It doesn't mean that the answer that my son Elijah gave to Latasha was false. It might have been, and, and it might have been false because he didn't know. It doesn't necessarily mean that the answer he gave was wrong or false, that, or that it was a bad answer, but it is to say that the answer that's received from the one who is supreme, the one who, who carries more weight, that is the answer, that is the message that carries more weight. And that is the case here today. Our intention, the reason that the author 
spends so much time in chapter 1 explaining how Christ is so much greater than angels is because angels were regularly used by God to deliver messages. This is something that the Lord regularly did. He regularly employed angels to bring his word to the people. They were his messengers often employed. Think of, of examples such as uh, in the book of Acts, the, angels that, the angel that brings to Cornelius the good news of the gospel when the gospel expands and extends to the Gentiles or, or the angels that come and war, warn Job and his family as they bring this word to him of the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or perhaps even consider when the angel Gabriel came and spoke to Mary the glorious news that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was going to be born through her conceived of the Holy Spirit. Angels were often used to bring very important, very valuable, and very truthful messages. We see in verse 2, he talks about the message that was declared by the angels in this case. The the author here is is actually talking about the Mosaic law in verse 2. This is the message that was brought to them by angels, when we see in verse 2, for since the message declared by angels has proven to be reliable. This, by, by most commentators' estimate, is referring to the Mosaic Law, which according to Scripture was delivered by angels, that they were instrumental in the bringing of the law. We see references to this in various places. We see in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, where Moses says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran and came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. We, we see from this text directly from Moses' mouth, the one who received the law, that angels were instrumental in the bringing of the law. We don't necessarily know exactly how that was, but we see from his words that they were important. They were a part of the bringing of the law. And we see this further expanded in Acts when Stephen is preaching to the Jews and he says, you who received the law as delivered by angels. Stephen here affirms the same thing, that, that the law, the Mosaic law, was given through angels. Again, in Galatians 3.19, we, we see something similar where Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels. We see then that that angels were instrumental in the giving of the law, that the law was actually brought through angels, as our text here would indicate. And the author is not trying to say that the message given through angels, that that angels don't give good or important messages. Uh, In fact, the law that they gave was very important and was good. And as our text says, it was true. It was a true message and good message that was delivered through angels. The point is to not to say that angels don't bring good messages or valuable messages, but to say that the message that has been brought now is far greater because of the one who delivered the message, because of the one who brought it, Christ himself. The logic begins to become clear then that the message being presented is greater than anything that came before, even than that which came from angels. Why? Because it came from Jesus and he is greater and higher and more supreme than angels. So then we need to consider, what is the message that was delivered? What is the message that we need to hear, that we need to give a greater attention to? 
which leads us to point number two, the message. There are really two messages presented in our text here, as we see in verses two through three, where he says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience perceived received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We see here that there are actually two messages that are presented. There is one that was delivered by angels, and there's one that was delivered by Christ. And these two messages are to be considered in the light of each other. They are not to be uh, considered as a compare and contrast. We are not to take one and, and compare it and contrast it to say which one is, is bad and which one is good, but rather we are to see them as building upon one another, as one being the fulfillment of the other. So let's consider the first message then, the message that was declared by angels. We've already established that this message was the one given at Mount Sinai. It was the law that was given to Moses and to the people of Israel. But notice as we read on in verse 2, what does this writer, what does the author understand the message of the law that was given to be? He takes a, a, a point of teaching, a point of understanding from the law, and he says, what can we learn from the law? We can learn this. Every transgression or dis disobedience received a just retribution. The writer rightly understands that the law that was delivered by the angels was given to demonstrate the holiness, the justice, the righteousness of God, and that all who sin against him, all who transgress, transgress and fall short of this righteous standard will be punished. For punishment is due for falling short of the law. That is not a bad message. It is one that certainly... If we are left only with that message, it is not one that provides us much hope. Why? Because indeed there's no one that can live up to the law. Indeed, none of the Israelites ever did. And every breaking of the law against a holy God deserves eternal punishment. What this ought to drive us to is not to see that the law is bad, but to see that the law was inadequate to save. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 makes this point abundantly clear. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year. And he says in verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The point that the author of Hebrews makes in chapter 10 is that the law was inadequate. It's not that the law was bad, but that the law could not say that it was simply a shadow of the good things to come, that in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin and that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And when we consider the reality of the inadequacy of the law, as the author of Hebrews is calling the people to do, calling the, the listeners, the hearers of his message to do, say, listen, consider the message that was brought by angels. Though it was true, it leaves us without hope. 
if we have it and nothing else. For indeed, every transgression or disobedience deserved a just retribution. Sinning against a holy and eternal God deserves everlasting and eternal punishment. That is the truth that the law leaves us with, and that is the truth. This is the message that was delivered by angels. And the point that the writer is making here is that if this is true, and all sin, and all will receive a just retribution, and that the blood of animals, of bulls, of goats, of all these offerings that we are making can do nothing to cleanse us from sin, then he asks rightly in verse 3, how shall we escape, escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here he is telling us what the message that Jesus brings, the greater message that comes from Jesus Christ the Supreme really is. He gives us the answer to the question of what that message is. It is a message of salvation found in Christ Jesus. And here we begin to see the whole message of Hebrews. The message of Hebrews, if I were giving it an overarching, what is the message of Hebrews? It is that the new covenant is greater than the old covenant because the new covenant has Christ as its mediator. That it is mediated to us through Christ Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He is the perfect spotless lamb of God. Unlike bulls and goats who could never take away sin, Christ was the perfect sacrifice who once for all has redeemed his people and now mediates to us the new and better covenant from his place on high. This is the message of Hebrews and it is the message that he is drawing us to here as he takes this aside from his message, his declaration on the supremacy of Christ. He says, just consider for a moment. Let's just take a break and let's consider the greatness of Christ and this message that he's given us, that message of salvation in him. Third, we see the proof of this message. The second half of verse three and then in verse four we read, it was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For anyone in here today who might think, well, why should I believe this message? What evidence is there? Certainly many of his Readers might have thought the same thing. Why should I believe this message that you are pushing on me as opposed to the message that we have received from angels or, or other messages? And he gives the answer, and he gives the answer in three pieces of evidence. The author writes and tells us that this is a true message. The first piece of evidence that he gives is that it was declared first by Christ. Again, reiterating the point, this is not a message delivered by men but one delivered by Christ. He also in this is, is displaying for us, encouraging us that this is not a new message that he is presenting. It is one that, guess what? Christ was the first preacher of. I am not saying something, anything new, anything different, but rather I am just encouraging, pushing you towards what Christ has already declared, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, that he is true food. It was declared, first of all, by Christ, the Son of God, the Supreme. This is proof number one. Proof number two is that it was attested to by those who heard it, particularly the apostles. As they received the message from Christ, they attested to it in various ways. First of all, by their writings, they wrote down for us. They encouraged us in the, the truth that came in Christ, the gospel. They wrote 
on it declare to us the good news? But then proof number three is that God bore witness to it by signs and wonders and spiritual gifts, that all the wonderful, miraculous things that were done through Christ, all the wonderful, miraculous things that were done through the apostles in the book of Acts, all of these things were intended to provide proof, evidence of the truth, truthfulness of the message. This ought to cause us to consider the purpose of signs and wonders and miracles for there is all kinds of confusion surrounding why it is. What is the purpose of signs? What is the purpose of miracles? What is the, the purpose of healings and, and miraculous things and wonders? For oftentimes it's easy for us to get confused, to get bogged down with these things. For there are people, there were people in the days of the apostles, and there are people today that see signs and wonders, or at least the, uh, the claim of signs and wonders, to be a means to an end for them, a means to make money or to make a name for oneself. Or in other cases, sometimes they are seen simply as a means to an end physically here on earth. But they are not primarily intended to serve that purpose. Healings, signs, miracles, whatever was done by Christ, by the apostles, and many were healed. Many of the blind were brought sight. Many of the demon-possessed were set free. But the purpose of all of this was not simply to have more healed people, more people walking around, more people able to see physically, less people with demon, possess demon possession. That was secondary. The primary purpose of signs and wonders and miracles was to attest to the truthfulness of the message that Christ brought, the message of salvation, the message that is the gospel. And notice that he finishes that section by saying, distributed according to his will. There's nothing that we can do in order to manipulate signs and wonders or spiritual gifts in order to receive them. Contrary to what some people might say, there is nothing that you can do to learn the spiritual gift of tongues or to learn the spiritual gift of healing and to obtain this ability. This is not a superpower that can be trained and harnessed like, like Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. This is something that is given by God according to his will, not according to our presuppositions or our ability to stir it up within ourselves. It's something that is given by Christ and all of these things, these signs, these wonders, they are all intended to point us to the truthfulness of the message that was first declared by Christ, the first preacher of the gospel. Finally, we let us consider for a moment the stakes that the author is presenting for us. The word at the beginning of our passage that is translated must, where he says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. This word translated must in verse one is also the same word used in 1 Timothy chapter three, where Paul says that overseers must be above reproach. The idea behind this word, the Greek word that is used here and translated must is not that it is a suggestion not that it would be better if you did this thing but not really a big deal if you don't but rather what is implied here is that this is a command it is commanded this is a necessity it is a command to be obeyed that you must pay closer attention to what you have heard verse one serves as a warning saying that the reason we must pay closer attention to what we has heard what we have heard, is that if we don't, we will drift away from it. 
This is nautical language that the author is using here. What is being communicated is the idea of a ship drifting away from its intended course or destination. It is the idea of one that is not properly moored, that is allowed to drift out to sea aimlessly and and ultimately to its doom. I think we sometimes fail to think that the only ships that are doomed are the ones who are intentionally sailing away from the destination. Those who are intentionally rejecting the gospel, intentionally moving away from it, intentionally denying Christ. And yet I think what our text would have us to see here today is that it is not just those who are intentionally sailing the wrong way like Jonah did who are in danger, but it is those who maybe want to go to the right destination, maybe know the right destination, maybe punched it into their GPS, but then completely neglected it and are essentially adrift. Their doom is as certain as those who intentionally move in the wrong direction. For indeed, if we neglect the gospel, even if we think that it is true, if we neglect it, if we fail to put our faith in it, if we fail to anchor ourselves in that good news, then we are as doomed as one who rejects it outright. This particular passage presents for us a sort of interpretive challenge Uh, as the readers because we notice the author here who again we don't know who the author of Hebrews is the author here includes himself in this exhortation in verses 1 and in verses 3 where he says therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it in verse 3 he says how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation it appears to me that that the author is including himself in this for a reason. And one of the questions that we need to ask here is who are the we that the author is talking about? And the answer to that question can affect how you interpret this text, how you understand this text. Is the author here talking about fellow Christians? Is the author here talking about fellow Jews, fellow Hebrews? Is he talking about fellow non-Christians? There are some who have proposed that the author of Hebrews is not a Christian and is writing to a non-Christian audience. I reject that. I don't think that's the case, but that question is oftentimes raised when we read this passage. When we read him saying, how shall we escape if we neglect such a salvation? But I would offer for us that we can find understanding in this text when we understand it in the whole of the letter that is written to Hebrews. As is always the case, we never ought to take a text, a passage of scripture, a single verse, and remove it from its context and try to understand it solely. But we need to understand it in light of the whole letter that this author has written. This is like if you read in 1 Peter where uh, Peter writes and says that Christ on the cross bore our transgressions, that by his wounds we are healed. Many people have taken that text alone and said, by his wounds we are healed, means we can have healing on this earth. That if you are injured, if you are sick, that healing is available for you physically if you just claim it, if you just have enough faith. And that is a false understanding. Why? Because it's ripped out of its context. In fact, if you read the book of 1 Peter, Peter, you'll know that largely Peter is writing to an audience in suffering and encouraging them in their pain, in their trials, in their suffering. This is not a text intended to say you can have your suffering removed. But to say, as that passage would indicate for us, that through Christ we can be healed of our sin, of our transgression, of our truest, deepest need. And the same is true of our understanding of 
this text, that we must understand it in light of the book of Hebrews. For in multiple places through the book of Hebrews, the writer speaks to the issue of those who reject the faith. And in at least four places in Hebrews, the author speaks to the issue of those who reject the faith, of those who fail to enter into his rest, as he says in chapter 3, or of those who, as he says in chapter 6, have fallen away. The writer regularly refers to those who seem to have a grasp on salvation, who seem to understand and accept the gospel outwardly, yet ultimately end up demonstrating their rejection of the gospel, end up drifting away. The warning that is being given here is the warning against apostasy. It is the warning against thinking that you are truly saved, behaving as though you are truly saved, but ultimately not having the gospel. It is a warning against rejecting faith in Christ and commitment to him. It is this same idea that's communicated in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, where Paul tells Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. He says in verse 19, Holding, fast, holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. This is the danger of drifting away from, of neglecting salvation, of neglecting the gospel, that we drift away from it and ultimately make a shipwreck of our faith. This is not intended to communicate that if you are in Christ, you can lose your salvation. That is not the message being communicated here. The message being communicated here is be sure that you do not simply think that the gospel is a good idea or that it's a sweet message, but be sure that you commit yourself to it and take hold of it truly and rightly by faith. So what are the stakes? The stakes quite literally are life and death. For if we fail to take hold of the gospel, then ultimately we are, are putting ourselves out to sea, unanchored, unmoored, just waiting for destruction. As we close, I want to close just by telling a story that John MacArthur told in, in his commentary on this passage that I thought was quite, um, quite helpful, quite fascinating to illustrate this point. He talked about a time when uh, a woman who was a prostitute uh, in his town uh, there in California came to him and, and expressed her uh, desire to accept Christ. She came to him and, and said that she heard the gospel as he preached it, that she believed that it was true and that she came and wanted to repent of her sin, wanted to accept the gospel, wanted life that was available in Christ Jesus. And, and Pastor John saying, but praise God, let's, let's talk about it right now, that, that this can be true of you, this can be yours if you accept Christ, if you give your life to him. And this woman said, yes, I want to do that. I want to do that right now. And, and she prayed as, as John prayed with her to accept Christ. And, and uh, Pastor John MacArthur said, now that we've done that, let's Let's make a display of this commitment that you have made to Christ. He said, I, I imagine you probably have a, a book of, of uh, clients somewhere with you. And she said, yeah, I do. And she, she showed him the book of her clients. And he said, let's take that book and let's burn it. Let's be rid of it once and for all as a declaration uh, to, to God, to Christ, your commitment to him. And, and as a, a recognition of what has been done in your life, of the change that has taken place. So you are a new creation. And upon this, the woman pulled the book back and said, but do you know how much money this book is worth? 
And Pastor John said, well, if you are truly committed to Christ, if, if you understand what it is that he is offering, then you'll understand that, that was he, what he is offering is so much greater than, than that book, and you ought to be rid of that, to turn from your sin, repent, and cling to Christ. And the woman said, I guess I don't really want this then. And she walked away. And this sad story illustrates for us the reality of what can happen. That there can be people that live in the church, that come on a week-to-week basis, that hear the gospel, that even know the details of the gospel, and yet are unwilling to commit themselves fully to the gospel for various reasons. For some, it is for for fear that they will experience hatred or persecution, perhaps even from their family. For some, it is for fear of of what the world might think. For some, it is because they don't want to give up what they have. They consider it to be more valuable than, than Christ and what he has available in the gospel. And this text certainly has application to the non-believer. To the non-believer, you're hearing the same thing that believers are, that there is a, a truth, that there is a message that is available, and it is a message of life, that it is available, given through Christ. And if you are not in Christ, if you have not accepted the message that he has given, the gospel, the message of salvation, then you are left with the message that the angels brought, the message that every transgression will receive retribution. That is what you are left with apart from Christ. You are left with the law and left knowing. And if you don't know, then I'm telling you here right now, you cannot measure up to that law. All that is available for those who try and stand up to the law, who try and live in the law, all that is available is destruction and death and eternal hellfire. But there is a better message available, and that message is found in Christ Jesus, delivered by him, the message that he is the true Lamb of God who has come, who has died to take away our sins. And we need to be careful, though, to think. We need to be careful not to think that there is no application for believers here. We might think, if, we, if you are a believer in here today, you might be tempted to think, no, I'm a Christian. I don't. Uh, this doesn't really apply to me. If I've already taken hold of this message, I believe it. I'm fine. I'm good. And then go on your merry way. But I would posit to you, I would, I would propose that the author of this message, who includes himself in it, the author of Hebrews, that he includes himself as a Christian, saying that we, as those who profess faith in Christ, need to live that faith out, need to exercise that faith. We need to remember to pay close attention to the salvation message that we've been given in Christ. For indeed, apathy is as dangerous as hatred of God. It is just as dangerous. There is, I think, a sense in which we, especially um, those of us who are in the Reformed community, can, in a sense, offer an abuse of assurance that we can think there is the temptation to think that if we are in Christ, then there's no worries. The message has been changed, has been altered to say that to accept Christ that one time when you walked an aisle, when you as a child were baptized as an infant, when you were uh, on Mother's Day perhaps presented before the church and dedicated to the Lord, that because of whatever that event was, you are good, and because of the doctrine of eternal security, you don't have to worry, you don't have to pay attention, you don't even really have to think about it because you are in Christ. And that is a false teaching, a false teaching that frankly the devil would love for us to believe, would love for us to rest in. Hey, you're good, don't even think about it anymore, no problem. But the author of Hebrews is encouraging us here. No, you need to think about it more. You need to think about it harder. You need to pay closer attention to this message delivered 
by Christ. What we are called to do is essentially what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The message Peter gives here is not one that denies calling, is not one that denies the electing sovereignty of God who chooses to save sinners. It in no way removes that. But it says, rather, believer, church family, brother, sister, confirm that election or that calling that the Lord has called you to. Do not rest simply in that doctrine alone, but confirm it in your life, confirm it in your dedication, in your commitment to Christ. Plant your anchor deep in the word of God and in the gospel. That is the only means by which we can find security and hope. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the salvation message that he brings to us. Let's pray.